welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Tamara Vanette Shelton on the show. Dr. Shelton is an associate professor of history at Claremont McKenna College and the author of Herbs and Roots, A History of Chinese Doctors in the American Medical Marketplace, as well as A Squatter's Republic, Land and the Politics of Monopoly in California from 1850 to 1900. Please enjoy our wonderful conversation. In regards to Squatter's Republic, what drew you to writing about land issues in California? I started writing about Henry George, actually. I didn't I didn't start thinking I was going to write about land in California in particular, but I was a 19th century specialist. I was really interested in the Gilded Age. My dissertation advisor at the time said, have you ever thought about writing something about Henry George? And Henry George, if you don't know, was in the late 19th century, really kind of the second most famous American worldwide after Abraham Lincoln. I mean, everyone read his stuff. He's, he was a celebrity almost before there were celebrities. And yet here we are in the early 21st century and no one really knows who he is. Um, he, he really is someone who faded very quickly from the public consciousness. So I was interested in, in, in weird Gilded Age people like Henry George. And as I started to research him, I realized that someone who had been very influential of him in his early career was a fellow named James McClatchy. And the McClatchy name, I think, is uh, one that will be really familiar to anyone who knows about California history, anyone who has read one of the many bees that exist in the world. The McClatchy family is, uh, has been a major media conglomerate or had became uh, the, the, sort of the, the family overseeing a major media conglomerate. So James McClatchy was basically Henry George's mentor. And as I was writing about George, I started writing about James McClatchy, and I realized that James McClatchy immigrates to the United States and then to California and becomes involved in land wars, in squatter wars. And it was for me this total surprise to, to wind up writing about squatters and people shooting it out on the streets of Sacramento in the 1850s or having standoffs on ranches and uh, across the state. But I kind of just fell in love with these wacky squatters and the things that they were doing and the politics they were getting involved with uh, and the way that they're legacy and 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 the way that their later year in later years they were reimagined and repurposed in all sorts of questions and controversies that d really defined not just California in the gilded age but the whole United States in the gilded age it was for me this this wonderful kind of serendipitous uh, rabbit hole that i fell down so that's how i wound up writing about land issues in california it was not a very direct path well, I do love uh, both of your books, and we're going to talk about herbalist stuff later, but um, both of your books kind of are, are just have some so these kind of persistent themes that are still very prevalent. You know, I mean, we we're dealing with a lot of like Western medicine around COVID issues, and then obviously with, uh, you know, homeless stuff going on in California, like these are persistent themes across California history. And so they can, they, your books are just, even though they're talking about historical periods, they're so relevant today, both, uh, both of the subject matter, but let's define squatters for a little bit, because I think, I think people maybe have a perception based on the modern term uh, for squatter, which is 
definitely has some similarities, but some differences. So can you define it for us, what it meant back then? Very simply, squatters are people who claim ownership over the spaces that they use and occupy. So that's something that was true in the 19th century. It's something that's true now. In the 19th century, though, there was legal and extra legal squatting, uh, and it was integral to the settlement of the American West. Squatters moved out ahead of survey lines, ahead of the U.S. survey lines, really from from the time there there was a United States, they would go out um, into land that was claimed by indigenous peoples, but otherwise unpoliced and un um, sort of controlled by the state. And they would set up houses and farms and they would build fences. And their hope was that by the time the U.S. survey line reached them, that they would have the right to purchase that land more cheaply prior to public auction. So so squatters were really kind of pushing if there it was an American frontier, right? They were pushing it forward and and trying to basically acquire land cheaply or profit from selling their land to to other colonial settlers coming from the east and and moving west. So squatters have kind of always been part of of the history of the American West. Um, there are a lot of, of people who have written about them um, in other places. Squatters in California, I think, uh, prior to my book, had a kind of a reputation for lawlessness, had a reputation for being sort of these scrappy underdogs who were um, fighting against big landholders, big land monopolists. But then when I started doing my research into James McClatchy and Charles Robinson and a lot of these folks who came west to California during the era of the gold rush, they they were really interested in land speculation. They were really not interested in being scrappy little underdogs. They were squatting on that land in hopes of turning a major profit, right? They were They were hoping to acquire that land cheaply and then sell it to big agrarian, you know, big agribusiness type, um, you know, consolidators of land or sell it to other maybe smallholders who would pay a premium for uh, improved and and valuable, arable California land. Yeah, I feel like it's an interesting semantic discussion because I, I, I just am a previous guest of mine, uh, Alan Taylor, who just had a big book come out uh, about kind of the period before we're talking about, but, you know, one of the, in the first chapter about constitutions, he talks about, you know, all these different groups that were pushing into, into these territories that were not part of the United States and just squatting on land, trying to secede. But how do we dis- distinguish between uh, people taking land and squatting? Cause I feel like those are uh, kind of the same thing, but there's, but there's, you know, obviously the indigenous element there as well, um, and so it's it's hard to really distinguish between imperial expansion and squatting. And how do you separate and distinguish between those? You know, squatting is not done in a centralized or coordinated way, right? Okay. So so squatters do, they move out independent of, uh, let's say, institutional support. They they move out ahead of, of legal support. Squatting does eventually become legalized uh, in the 1840s. There are these sort of a long period of congressional debate where the U.S. Congress is trying to figure out what are we going to do about these squatters? And they do eventually create a system of preemption whereby these folks who are moving independently out 
ahead of, of the United States um, and its, its agents are able through legal channels to become recognized as landholders, to acquire public land, to um, sometimes get compensation for the work that they've done prior to formal ownership. I would also say squatters, you know, even though they're not centrally organized or uh, under the direction of any central body, they do get very organized themselves and they'll organize into societies. They organize into sort of quasi-legal bodies, but it is very much something that they do on their own and in the absence of, of real guarantees that they will be compensated, that, that they will be able to convert their extra legal claims into titles. So I think that might be a something of a distinction when we talk about other types of westward migrants and settler colonists. Sometimes they are moving out as companies, right? Or they're moving out into a space that has been surveyed and has been opened up for allotment by the United States. They're moving out with the support of the U.S. military. So that this is, you know, if we get into sort of histories of over, great overland migrations in the middle part of the 19th century, that it was very much aided and, and abetted by the U.S. military, right? We, those, those types of colonists did what they did and, and dispossessed Indian peoples in the ways that they did because they had the support of, of U.S. Army, right? Yeah, and we just I just did a conversation with uh, Andrew McDowell, who wrote the book We the Miners, and we talked about this kind of self organization that happens. Um, and we focus more on the meetings and the the order that the meetings had amongst miners related to land claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you distinguish between kind of the gold mining mineral claims and what squatters are doing? We talked a lot about uh, adverse possession, or is there some distinctions there as well? There really isn't. So so squatters were squatting on land that they suspected had minerals. They were squatting on land that they thought was good for farming. You know, they, they really principally are have an eye to what is the what is likely to be productive and valuable. Now, mineral land laws were somewhat separate from the laws that were governing land that you might use more for farming or timbering or ranching because there was some dispute over who actually owned what was, you know, down under the land, right? So when you get federal preemption laws and other laws that are going to deal with the dispossession of the public domain, very often mineral lands are separated, right? They're sort of held apart from the the general um, distribution of those lands because because those minerals are so potentially so so valuable, but but there's definitely sort of in the in the broadest sense for squatters for these individuals or small groups who are going out west and trying to get a toehold right get get some kind of of claim they don't really see a difference right between squatting on mineral lands or squatting on farmers lands adverse possession is simply the the claim to own land that you use and occupy uh, your use and occupancy is the basis of your your ownership claim and we still actually have adverse possession laws now um you know my na- if i build a fence on what is technically my neighbor's property i can claim by adverse possession that sort of strip of land between my property line and my fence because i i've sort of claimed it by my use and occupancy so What's your take on the aphorism, good fences make for good neighbors? I mean, as long as your good fence is 
appropriately situated <laughs> on your boundary line, right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Henry George because, to be honest, I'm not as I I have a I have like almost like a you know on the Wikipedia page like the first paragraph like I got the first paragraph in mind of who he is. Uh, but can you give us just a brief sketch of who he was and why people should know about him? Henry George is really this archetypal Gilded Age guy. He was a, a self-made man, right? He was someone who went out to California thinking he was going to be striking it rich, um, at, you know, my, uh, prospecting for gold. And he missed the boat, right? He got there too late. Um, and he wound up doing what he didn't think he was going to do. His, his father had been a newspaper printer. He'd spent kind of his whole youth not wanting to be a printer, avoiding it, you know, going to see, rabble rousing with his friends, pretty much doing everything he could not to become his father. Then he goes west and realizes, oh, actually, that really, really the thing I can do is print newspapers out west. Mm -hmm. So he has this sort of wonderful rise to real international celebrity in a way I think that could only happen in the Gilded Age. He starts out writing for California newspapers or writing for Eastern newspapers about California issues. And he writes about the Chinese people. He actually gets very famous writing anti-Chinese, horribly racist, um, anti-Chinese tracts and publishing them nationally. He writes about railroads. I mean, he was really writing about all the things that people in the 1860s and 70s cared most about. And at a certain point, he ends up getting an idea, which is that the, all of the world's problems can be solved by a very simple thing. And he calls it, or his followers call it, the single tax. So what we're going to do this is Henry George and his thought process. This is what we're going to do is we're not going to tax anything except for rent. So if you are a landholder and you are farming on your land or you're otherwise, you know, using your land to produce things, great. But if you are a landlord, if you're renting your land to other people, then all of that rent is going to be expropriated by the state. And this is going to solve problems because it is going to crush land monopolies. It's going to prevent people from buying up all the productive land and kind of holding it as a monopoly and, and raising the value of that land such that small independent landholders can't, can't get a piece of the pie, right? They can't break in. I think this is something in California we can really appreciate right now with the cost of real estate being as it is. And I think any major city worldwide with people buying things up for Airbnb, right? I mean, we, we can all sort of appreciate how someone like Henry George might have thought to himself, if only, if only we could bust up the land monopolies, right? All, all good things would flow from that democracy, opportunity, equality. You know, he, he really was a sort of typical Gilded Age thinker in that he saw these huge, complex, naughty social problems. And he thought, I could solve this, right? I can solve this with one, one simple solution. So the single tax was his and he ended up leaving California uh, really to get kind of bigger audiences for his work. Uh, he moved to New York and became, as I said, really a, a celebrity, um, you know, international celebrity. His book, Progress and Poverty, was probably the best-selling book of the 19th century after the Bible. Um, it was, you know, reprinted in dozens of languages. It was read worldwide. People absolutely loved 
loved him. I mean, and and I think really wished for his solution to work, but he was so entirely unsuccessful in any kind of legislative or, you know, practical policy type perspective. Every once in a while, someone, one of his followers would get elected to, to some political office, but really his eyes, his ideas never penetrated beyond um beyond the sort of level of discourse uh there were there are very few examples i can point to of communities or polities that adopted a single tax and yet the idea was clearly so attractive right it clearly resonated so much with people so i guess his his central relevance today is more in his identification of the problem rather than his solution would you say I think that's fair. I mean, the the real contribution, right? If there's a lasting contribution of his, it's in this articulation of the opposition to monopoly. Henry George, along with others in the Gilded Age, recognized the power of monopolies. The Gilded Age is kind of coming out of the American Civil War. We have this long period of, of economic growth, of industrialization, of, of consolidation with the scale of industry that's achieved after the American Civil War, in some ways, those those industries need to be organized as monopolies. They work most efficiently in the absence of competition. So I'm thinking here about the railroads are really the most obvious example of this. And you can read um, Bill Cronin's masterpiece, Nature's Metropolis, is, is all about this late 19th century moment of consolidation corporatization, monopolization, and why that made sense, right? Why that was a logical organization, even as it was so massifying, de-individualizing, undemocratic. There were so many forces that lent themselves to being organized quite naturally as monopolies. So Henry George, among others in this Gilded Age moment, is, is looking around and saying, what can we do about this, right? How can we start to break down these these massive structures in which we're living and restore independence, restore democracy, restore opportunity in, in ways that are similar to what we had in, in a more agrarian type republic, but are still modern, still moving forward, still able to capture the benefits of, of industrialization. So, so he's really one of these key thinkers in trying to make sense of the Gilded Age moment. And, and I think, you know, if he has a legacy in our time, we still live with the problem of monopoly. I mean, our monopolies are not, you know, huge railroad systems or public utilities, right? There, We don't have the sort of same kinds of highly visible, capital-intensive monopolies that Gilded Age people were living with, but we have corporate monopolies Amazon, right? I mean, sort of Elon Musk acquiring Twitter, right? We have these these real problems of monopoly that are almost invisible. I mean, we we live within them in ways and they kind of control and constrain our choices in ways that we're almost not aware of. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that recently because I saw the, that infographic about how there's like four companies that uh, right. are connected to all of our food supply. Right. Um, and that and and not having any sense of that there are just 
like a couple people that are, or not a couple people, a couple companies uh, deciding what's on our grocery shelves and what's in those things on our grocery shelves. I mean, I think that's something to at least be cognizant of, if, if not at least concerned about. Can we can we talk about the progressive turn? So we're talking about the Gilded Age. So how did the progressive era affect land issues in California? Uh, did legislation get involved to disrupt some of these systems? When we talk about the progressive era, sometimes people fold it in with the Gilded Age. So there's been a, a turn to thinking about the long progressive era, which really begins in, let's say, the 1870s and goes up through the Great Depression. I tend to break out the Gilded Age from the Progressive Era. To me, the Progressive Era is really about the bureaucratization of certain processes. It's about sort of the folks who are educated in the wake of the American Civil War, who, uh, who have greater opportunities for higher education, applying their expertise to the solving of social problems, uh, really more like the very end of the 19th century and the first couple decades of, of the 20th century. This moment, these decades for the American West, for California and the American West, are just unfathomably transformative. Um, the bureaucracies that develop in the late 19th century, the 1890s, and the first couple decades of the 20th century, build the West. Uh, they enable the West to escape from its dependence on Eastern capital. They allow for major irrigation projects. They allow for the total reformation of what's possible to do in California and the West. So it's a little hard to overstate yeah, yeah. the importance of the progressive era for the West. In the in the case of land, I think actually the probably the most important progressive era legislation has to do with water because you know you know everyone knows, right? I mean, yeah. all everything west of the Hundred Meridian, especially California, is dependent on this scarce resource, which is water. We're a dry place. And yet the kinds of things that we do rely on whatever water we can source. So things like, you know, the Reclamation Act, right? So this is a this is a federal act. It has a huge effect on California. It reorganizes and makes possible a lot of the large-scale agribusiness that, you know, defines the, the California economy today. And it is related to this issue of monopoly because when you do these irrigation projects, mon monopoly, land monopoly, right, consolidating farms and coordinating them is actually the most efficient way to think about irrigation, right, to construct the works that you need for irrigation, to distribute the water. You really want to have some kind of centralized control of water. But it's so antithetical to the dream of California, which was the dream of the small independent landholder, right? So California um, in, the, in the first couple decades of the 20th century goes through all these different experiments to try to re-empower small landholders, even as there is this trend toward consolidation of, of irrigation works and consolidation of farms. So there are all sorts of interesting little schemes that the state comes up with or that in individual um, or become irrigation districts come up with to try to restore democracy, to try to kind of devolve decision rights to the lower levels. But ultimately, I think these things are really just up against this incredible environmental unavoidable barrier, which is that we don't have that much water in this state. And at a certain point, all Californians were really dependent on 
municipalities, the state or the federal government to figure out the solution to that problem. You know, there's a lot of things that we could talk about from your Squatters Republic book that relate to today. But I do want to pivot, given, you know, the background with COVID and different things, uh, to talk about your most recent book. Uh, What was the interest in looking at Chinese herbalists? What I learned doing the first book, doing A Squatter's Republic, was really a lot about the type of history I like to do. So I really like people. I like researching people. I like writing about people. I like following them around in their weird little circuits they do. And so when I was in living in Portland, Oregon in um, 2011, I was looking around for another project that I could do that would be about people, that would really kind of foreground Westerners and their experiences. And if you live in Oregon, I would say most people who live in Oregon are familiar with a fellow named John, uh, named Inge, who lived in John Day, Oregon. This is a little tiny, very depressed town out in eastern Oregon. It was a, a center for timbering. It had had a gold rush in the late 19th century. But this fellow, Inge, had immigrated there in the 1880s from China. And he and some business partners set up a Chinese herb shop. They sold Chinese medicine out of just an ordinary kind of mud building for about about 60 years, actually, almost 60 years. And when he was very old and too feeble to live out there on his own, his nephew came, moved him out, moved him to a retirement home in Portland and locked the door on this building. And it sat there. Uh, it sat there for 30 years. And finally, in the 1970s, the state took it over And when they opened it up, it was like Tutankhamun's tomb. I mean, when they opened it up, it was this real treasure trove of this man's life, his business, his community, uh, because the business had been also a shrine. It had been a recreation center for Chinese immigrants living in John Day. Um, So now it's a state museum. It's it's an archive. You can go and visit. It has a lovely park. Uh, so people in Oregon are familiar with this person, and, and I and I became familiar with him living in Portland as I was. So I thought, oh, you know, that's really interesting. I wonder, you know, how many Chinese herbalists were there living in the American West at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century? I bet I could write an article. I bet I could write, you know, like a 25-page article. There probably were, you know, a few, like a handful. And so I start researching and looking for these folks. And there are just hundreds of them. They're just, and they're everywhere. And I find them not just in Oregon and California and Washington, but they're in Montana and Idaho and Utah and Washington, D.C. And they're in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in 1799. And it was just for me, this kind of mind boggling thing that now to me seems so obvious, right? Now I think to it, well, of course there were Chinese herbalists. I mean, wherever there were Chinese people, there were, were going to be Chinese herbalists attending to their care. But more than that, Chinese medicine has always been part of the Euro-American pharmacopoeia. I mean, why do people in the, uh, starting at the end of the 15th century and really in the 16th century start prospecting for medicines in Asia? It's because they know that there's this tradition of Chinese herbal medicine that seems quite effective, right? So so we have a really long history in the Western world of sourcing our medical knowledge and our materia medica, especially herbal and um, zoologically based medicines in and around China. Can you talk about how these kind of Western medicine, as we understand it, and the herbalists, how these interacted with each other? We should start by saying what we now think of as Western medicine or 
Western style medical science is something that developed slowly over time. Mm -hmm. It developed over the course of the 19th century. It was not necessarily the most effective uh, or the most safe, right? The safest form of medical care when it was just getting started and consolidating its, its theories and its meanings. So Western style medical science really grew up in a very rich, very diverse marketplace of ideas. And, and not to interrupt you or anything, but no, no, um, when I when I read that book, Emperor of All Maladies, and I was reading yeah. about some of the early like cancer approaches, like, good God, like you, oh you thought God. it was sophisticated. But then you hear like just like they're throwing people in rooms with all these uh, radioactive materials. I'm like, you know, I'm just so grateful that I live today. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think it's kind of stunning, right? And you think it's sort of stunning what people believed, but then there's so much hope and optimism, right? Mm -hmm. People want to be cured. They want to believe that nature provides these, these remedies in all different forms. And if you can just kind of unlock the key, unlock the mystery that 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 the world can be yours and you can live in um live to the age of 100, right? So people believe really wacky things. And I think we now we sit here in 2022 and we think, well, of course it was meant to be that we would have the medical institutions and the medical knowledge system that that defines our kind of mainstream um Western style medical um science now. But these things are so contingent. And as as medical science is developing in the 19th century, it's borrowing all the time from other medical knowledge systems, anything that worked, right, they were going to try. So elite practitioners of, of medicine, folks who were educated mostly in European medical colleges in the 19th century, were aware of Chinese medicine, were at least kind of conversant in uh, Chinese herbal medicine, some were aware of other modalities, things like acupuncture, um, you know, that sort of thing. But they were not always, um, let's say, uh, they, they, they still brought with them their own kind of lens of social difference and prejudice and discrimination. So, so they were, it's a, it's a kind of funny push-pull thing, right? Western style elite practitioners were both attracted to Chinese medicine and also highly suspect and highly skeptical of it, right? And they were trained to be that way, not just because of their training as scientists, but also because of their anti-Chinese prejudices, right? Their sort of American Orientalist frameworks that they applied to any kind of encounter they had with Chinese medicine. But that being said, American patient consumers were sampling freely from the global buffet of options. I mean, if, if they thought it was going to work, they were going to go. And Chinese herbalists, pretty much starting from the get-go, from the 1850s onward, became very adept at marketing their services to non-Chinese patients. Um, they would advertise in English. They would advertise in Spanish. They would hire English language speakers or Spanish Spanish speakers to do the translation work for them or eventually develop their own language abilities to do it themselves. And they very well understood what American patient consumers weren't getting from Western style medical science. They very much understood the kinds of concerns and anxieties that that American patients, especially women, had when entering into care with these elite practitioners. And they, Chinese doctors set themselves up uh, really in opposition to what 
Western style medical scientists could provide. They're such amazing and flexible entrepreneurs and like fascinating marketers. I've just never heard any of these stories before. I mean, I don't really get that in, you know, mainstream history education. You know, hear some of these stories. Can you maybe share one of your favorite characters from the book? Well, my absolute favorite research experience was when I got to know the daughter of one of these Chinese herbalists. Her name's Anna Dawn. She lives in Tucson, Arizona. Her father immigrated from China around 1911 when he was a teenager, and he went to go live with his uncle, who was a Chinese herbalist, and he went to be apprenticed to his uncle. And then his uncle had a sort of dream, much like McDonald's, of franchising herbal shops, right? So so Anna Don's father, after he got married and when he was young and starting his family, started opening herb shops all around the American West. I mean, this is a guy who moved probably 19 times in about 20 years. I mean, he would just go from town to town with his increasingly large brood of children, because I, I think Anna has about nine siblings or had about nine siblings. And every town he would go to, he would find a room to rent or really a, a, an apartment to rent in the white part of town. So he never set up shop in the Chinese part of town. He always went to where the white people were living. And then he would go to the newspaper shop and, and, and he had his little plate and he would pay to have his ad printed in the local newspaper and he would just swap out the address. So these kids grew up in a household where their dad would be working in the front room, receiving white patients, you know, diagnosing, prescribing Chinese herbal remedies. And then their mom would be in the back compounding the remedies. So their mom was the pharmacist and, and the kids would kind of help out a little bit, but mostly it was a mom and pop kind of shop. And for me, this was a really neat discovery because up until I met Anna, um, I had been kind of writing this book, talking about Chinese herbalists as men. And every once in a while, someone would say to me, where's the women? Where are the women, right? And I would say, well, you know, in traditional Chinese culture, right? Women stayed at home and they, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, totally wrong. I had just simply not been looking for the women. The women are in the back room doing the compounding and the pharmacy work. And once I had this conversation with Anna and she said to me, well, you know, my mom did the work in the back room, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to go back and look at all my sources again and look for the women. And sure enough, the wives are there, the daughters are there. Sometimes they end up taking over the business after the kind of original patriarch died. And they continue to have a sort of front man, a sort of someone who does the interfacing with the clients, but they are the ones who become the sort of torchbearers, right? And they carry on the business. So that that for me was was a really it was great to get to know Anna, um, and it was really important for me as a social historian to have that blind spot in my method um, uncovered. That's amazing. Let's take a 10,000 foot move or 20,000, whatever the phrase is. Given your research and writing this book, you might have a particular lens to kind of the discussions we're that are going on today around COVID and trusting science-based medicine, quote unquote, versus you know alternative treatments. How how has writing this book informed the way you see the current situation around medical discussions? Let me answer that in two ways, because I'll, I'll answer it first as someone who did a lot of research about traditional Chinese medicine and really what what we now think of as complementary alternative medicine offers to patient consumers. And to me, 
there there is a long history of medical abuse and distrust that has been fomented by what we now think of as the sort of mainstream Western style medical science. So now I feel like I very well understand widespread iatrophobia, right? Fear of doctors, widespread distrust of hospitals, medical authority. I, I feel like I have a lot of empathy and historical understanding for folks who perhaps due to intergenerational trauma, perhaps due to their own kind of cultural lens and, and set of preferences, um, do not enter into Western style medical care with a great sense of confidence who do not feel comfortable ceding their bodily autonomy over to someone who they feel like is going to be condescending to them, is going to um, prescribe invasive or highly uh, painful and just an uncomfortable procedures. Like I completely under understand that perspective. Has it turned me into someone who, you know, goes for herbal remedies or self-care or avoids vaccines? Absolutely not. I, I, I still believe very strongly in the scientific method. I believe very much that Western style medical science has developed to a point where it can be considered extremely trustworthy. I think that practitioners of Western style medical science, public health officials are highly trained individuals who genuinely want to do good in the world, who have, you know, as a sort of population, who genuinely want to apply their expertise to in ways that benefit health outcomes. But yes, I do have an understanding of, of the sort of legacy of distrust and, and, and real medical abuse that, that is behind a lot of the resistance and the skepticism we see. The second thing I'll say is I recently got a call from, um, from a journalist who was writing about herbal abortifacients. So people taking, um, going out and prospecting for things like Penny Royal and St. Anne's Lace that will induce abortions. And he was telling me that on TikTok now that women are sharing information about abor herbal abortifacients because of all of the abortion restrictions that, you know, 26 plus states that are where, where abortion is now illegal. And so he said to me, he said, you know, I wanted to get a quote from you about the history of, of using herbs to induce an abortion. And I realized in that moment, I was going to be quoted as saying something like, people have always, you know, taken herbs to induce abortions. No biggie, girls. Like, go ahead and do it. No, I do not want to be the person who is saying, don't take methotrexate, don't take misoprostol. I think one thing about studying this history is really understanding, yes, people did take herbs to induce abortions. Yes, sometimes it worked but sometimes it didn't. And, and there were really serious and dire health outcomes. So we have to be very appreciative of the moment in which we live where the, there are these safe drugs to take if one needs a therapeutic abortion, right? That, that they've been compounded with a lot of scientific knowledge and practice and testing. And so I, I really want, I don't want to be the historian who's like, we've always done it this way. Go for it, you know? Let's close by talking about books. What are two to three book recommendations for people that like California history? When I was thinking about this podcast and the question that you, you were you were going to ask, the book that first came to mind is a classic. It's a it's like an oldie but a goodie. I have read it so many times and I love it even more every time I read it, which is Donald Worcester's Rivers of Empire. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend it. It is not just about California, although California plays a big role. 
but it's really about conquest via ir irrigation in the arid west. And it is masterfully written. It has great anecdotes, great ideas. And I think for anyone who lives in California in the West, we can relate to and, and live with a legacy of, of that history. So highly recommend Rivers of Empire by Donald Worcester, total classic. And then more recently, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about fire too, um, you know, as we all do in California, right? It hasn't been so bad this season, but we, we just live in this era of accelerating global climate change with the threat of massive fires all the time. And my colleague, Char Miller at Pomona College put out a book called Not So Golden State, where he has some really terrific, accessibly written, because Char is a wonderful writer, accessibly written essays. And a lot of them have to do with fire and the history of fire suppression um, in California and the West. And also kind of the questions about, well, where do we go from here? And what do we do now? So I highly recommend not so golden state by Char Miller. Perfect. And I appreciate you doing this interview. Please go out and buy both books. They're both amazing reads about, uh, and, and one is about directly about California history, but obviously the Chinese herbalist book uh, features California centrally in it as well. So they're both great reads and uh, will change the way you look at the history of our state. So thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Jordan. It was great talking to you. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.